Hi everyone, welcome to another episode on Unplug with Annie. We are here at the finale of the Purpose series and today I have Dr. Rebecca Ray on the show. Rebecca is an author and clinical psychologist. Her message centers on the task of living bravely in the truth of our experiences as finders and seekers of meaning and connection. Rebecca has been a clinical psychologist for the best part of two decades and is the creator of Radical Courage, Transforming Fear into Freedom, which is a digital journey for humans ready for their brave, inspired life. She is also the author of The Art of Self-Kindness, The Universe Listens to the Brave, and Be Happy, 35 Powerful Habits for Personal Growth and Well-Being. I've been waiting to do this interview with Rebecca for a while now, and I'm so excited to have her on. I know she is full of wisdom, and that she is going to share something which I'm pretty sure is going to resonate with a whole bunch of you, and I'm so excited to be able to, to share that on this platform and have this conversation. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to Unplug with Annie. Thanks for jumping on today. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to chat. It's a pleasure to have you. You have a breadth of experience um, in your craft, but you've done a whole bunch of things, as well as being a pilot, now turned psychologist. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey, about how that transition happened, and, and also why that transition happened from your point of view. Sure. Um, I decided I was going to be a psychologist around the age of 15, I think, um, at a school careers night. I remember thinking that it would be cool to be able to figure out why humans do what they do. And so I decided on psychology then and I went straight to university to study um, after grade 12 and which is our final year of schooling in Australia. And as I was um, studying my first year of uni, I also decided to learn to fly, which was inspired by my grandfather, who was a pilot. And um, he's no longer with us, but he was one of the great loves of my life. And he told me that flying is no harder than driving a car. And so I believed him. He lied. Um, it might have been that way for him. <laughs> My grandfather was so great with his hands and he could build anything, he could operate anything and that included um, his own plane. And I am a person who is much more comfortable, you know, writing words on a page than I am doing mathematical equations or um, using my visuospatial skills. So flying was not that easy for me, but it gave me a chance to bond with him. And um, it was something that no one else in the family shared with him except for me. But it made me incredibly anxious. So I ended up getting my private pilot's license, which is like just your basic pilot's license to be able to fly privately in Australia. And that was all great, but I thought that my anxiety was a sign that I needed to um, push harder to get over it. And I didn't interpret my anxiety for what it was. And when I look back on it now, I think my anxiety was around just violating my own non-negotiables in life. So flying means that there's no 
well, if you fly regularly, there's no routine. So everything changes. The, the weather changes, um, other traffic in the air changes, uh, directives from air traffic control change, um, where you're flying will change depending on your fuel needs and what passengers you have and how much weight is in the aircraft. It all changes. And I love routine and I love stability and I love consistency. Some people might call me boring. I do not care. It's just, it's just what makes me me. And I don't think I fully realized that at the ripe old age of 18 when I started to fly. And so I didn't want to let the anxiety beat me. And I thought the way to get over it was to do more flying. And so I decided that I was going to make flying my career because I didn't want to admit just how anxious I was and I didn't want to fail. And so I went on to get a commercial pilot's license, which is one where you can actually um, operate a commercial aircraft with passengers. So you've kind of paid to do that work. And I got a whole series of other things and instructor rating and multi-engine rating and night rating, blah, 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 blah. And um, then I finally... I never carried passengers, would you believe? I never carried a passenger that wasn't a pilot because I was so anxious. And after all that training, I finally had to look myself in the eye and say, hey, feeling like you're going to vomit on the way to the airport is probably not a sign that this is the right career for you. And at that point, I really felt like I failed. I had to tell my grandfather and my parents that I didn't want to fly anymore. Neither of, none of them cared. I mean, my grandfather was just proud that I'd done what I'd done, but he, flying was not um, uh, attached to him loving me, you know. Same for my parents. And they just said, I want you, we want you to do what makes you happy. And so I went back to psychology, but very much feeling like a failure. And I returned to psychology because I still loved it. And I went on to uh, finish my doctorate and I went into private practice. And Mm -hmm. I think at that stage in my late 20s, by this time, I was still very much concerned about what other people thought of me. I couldn't give a shit these days, honestly. (laughs) I just don't care. Because the wonderful thing about aging is you start to know yourself so well that you only give credence to the important people in your life, or at least that's how it's worked for me. Aging has been wonderful for that. But at the time in my late twenties, I, when I was in private practice, I saw so many clients and I wanted to please my referrers. I never wanted to say no. Um, And I wanted to make sure that everyone was being helped if they needed help. And what that meant was um, I kind of hit my second major failure, or at least how I interpreted it at the time, by getting burnt out. And I got burnt out in my mid-30s. And I honestly thought I was going to be a psychologist in private practice until I was 70, until I was 80, like for as long as I could possibly work. And here I was at the ripe old age of 35 facing a career that I now didn't know what to do with because I had done so much of it that it was starting to destroy my spirit. I was faced with this idea of how do I reestablish myself in the career that I love um, and the career that I've trained so hard for, but not see clients anymore. And so again, I thought, oh my goodness, what a failure. 
what a failure to get this so this early in my career to burn out. And I don't see it like that at all now because it's those things that have led me to being with you today, to being able to do work that no longer feels like work. So I now work with entrepreneurs. I spend a lot of time reaching a whole lot of people that I could not reach if I was just seeing one person at a time in a day. And I'm able to be able to put pen to paper, write books, do things like this, um, chat with people who are really interested in personal growth and being able to contribute to the world in a meaningful way. And this is like a dream for me, you know, and I, I didn't know at those times when I failed that it was leading here, but I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I hit the wall in both times, both times with quite significant anxiety so that I was forced to listen to my body to change direction because it brought me here. Wow. Wow. Incredible. Wow. I mean, it really seemed like anxiety was almost like the catalyst for change. Um, or at least for you to recognize and, and, and get that awareness to begin with that something wasn't quite right. Just off the bat, that I would love to ask you at, at, at this moment in time, obviously we've just been through a, pan- a pandemic and still seeing traces of it. And um, how has that, because obviously uncertainty is something which we all experience at some point of our life, as much as we like schedule and routine, a lot of us do, I know I can relate. Um, and it can throw us off and we can experience anxiety from changing circumstances as well. So do you have any tips or suggestions of what people can do in a very practical way to minimize that anxiety when change does hit and occur and throw us off? Yeah, I think the first thing that I would talk about in terms of facing change is there's a difference between change that you create and change that's created by something outside of you and something that's completely outside of your control. So in my case, I initiated both those changes. It was within my control. It wasn't comfortable. I wouldn't say I loved it. I certainly didn't like having to, um, I'm someone who once they commits to something, does it kind of with my full self. And so I didn't like having to admit that I wasn't continuing down either of those parts anymore. But back then, if I had have known myself the way I knew myself now, it wouldn't have gotten to the level of anxiety because I would have listened to my intuition in the first place. And my intuition in both cases was saying quite some time before I was forced to make a decision that this was no longer right. And this can be the case for many people who are creating change in their lives. They know that it needs to happen. They know that something's not right with where they're at. And even if they don't know where they're going next, still they know they need to change direction. That's very different to facing uh, things like a pandemic, which come upon us and are seemingly controlled by the powers that be. So we no longer have control over um, where we can go, what we can do, who we can see, whether or not we wear a face mask. That's all dictated by the relevant um, government bodies in the countries that we live. And in those cases, and I think this is the one that takes people's sense of control away most. This is why we see conspiracy theories. Um, This is why we see people with extreme thinking kind of get louder during these times because they're desperately trying to um, hang on to some sense of control. 
And so during these times, what I would encourage people to do is to make sure that if they are feeling anxious, they have um, help. So there are, in at least most of the countries that I'm aware of, helplines, mental health helplines, to be able to talk through your um, anxieties. Because one of the things that anxiety, like shame, loves is to be able to just fester in the darkness. If you bring it out and start talking about it in the light of day, then often the anxiety doesn't have the same power over you than it normally does. The other thing is to understand, um, like everything, that this too shall pass, as it always does, it always will. But because when we're in it, we often are too far away from the start line to see where we have come from and how far we've come, but not close enough to the finish line to know when this will end. This is when our sense of control drops away and we start to feel really uncertain. So during those times, it's really important to have um, grounding strategies available, ways to be able to hold on to little habits and little routines that make you feel like you have a sense of control. And that might be that you uh, do yoga in the morning at home, you know, when you can't leave your house to exercise or whatever it is that you're facing. It might be that you phone a friend at a certain time um, each week so that you can debrief together. Creating these little um, mental health supporting routines can be really helpful in times of uncertainty when that uncertainty is placed upon you. You didn't ask for it, you're not creating it. I'm not saying that when you create change that it's any easier it's just different yeah um and when we're in times of pandemic it certainly feels like none of us asked for this and oftentimes the strategies to be able to survive the pandemic um bring with them a whole heap of side effects that are painful as well like disconnection from loved ones um and a whole series of other you know horrific consequences for people's work lives and financial lives and all that kind of stuff. I'm not an epidemiologist, so I'm not going to argue with the strategies that are used to keep us safe, but I will say that all of those things make it harder. And so during these times, it's about finding ways that you can ground yourself by giving yourself a sense of control in the small habits that you do each day. Yeah, yeah, no, true, very true. You do a lot of work, and I know that a lot of your work is centered around developing radical courage for something that you speak of. Um, and, and I know that in your story, I was reading a bit about it on your website as well, that you talk about self-worth a lot and how, how it took some time to develop. And I know what you've mentioned at the beginning as well, you coming to that realization that um, actually your parents just wanted you to be happy and your grandfather's love wasn't dependent on, you know, you achieving a certain a specific goal, um, which wasn't your own necessarily. Um, we often place our self-worth obviously in external, external things and in, in relationships, or job titles, um, and, and everyone I talk to, I think struggles with this in some way or form. Um, can you talk a little bit about your, your own experience with self-worth and, and how we can become more aware of where we're placing our self-worth and, and, you know, how to um, realign, if you like, so that we are not placing that self-worth in something outside ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I am any different from anyone else um, 
or at least not anyone else in the Western society in which we live, in that I grew up as a female that was just as um, easily swayed by the media and internet messages that we receive about what makes a person worthy. And so my own experience with self-worth started pretty early on when I achieved academically as early as grade one. I remember being in grade one and doing well academically and being given a jacket by my other set of grandparents. And it's just a little jacket. I remember it was like a caramel colored fake fur and um, uh, they were very proudly gave me that because of my report card. And so I learned pretty early on um, that I was being rewarded, uh, whether it be verbally, whether it be practically with presence for achieving grades. And that then flowed on to the other things that we as women attach our worth to my weight. Um, I had significant puffy, puppy fat before I hit puberty. So in primary school, I remember being, um, not, I wasn't bullied, but you know, I was certainly round and that was pointed out by, um, peers that weren't as round and, um, in puberty, I lost all this weight and all of a sudden was part of a different group because I looked different. And so one of the things that I think we take on, um, unconsciously is that our worth is attached to these things external to us. And that often starts when we're women with the way we look. And that's determined by um, the messages that we receive, not just by people um, significant to us. So our growing ups, both our um, caregivers, but also teachers and things like that. But it's also about who we look up to. And that could be, you know, people that we don't even know. Um, but what happens is we, we attach our worth to something outside of ourselves because that's what happens with what we see and that's what we're reinforced for, um, particularly as women. And so um, I learned that unconsciously at school um, by watching, by being reinforced, by being rewarded. And then it was also, you know, based on my personality type, I, I'm the child of parents who have strived, constantly strived to do well not academically inclined, either of them, but they've been very successful um, because they just have worked hard. And so I've been rewarded for working hard. And what that does is if you have any kind of flavor of perfectionism about you, which I do, not anymore though, but I certainly did growing up, is I just constantly pushed myself and pushed myself and attached my worthiness to my studies um, how much education I had, my pilot's license, um, anything else I kind of added to my arsenal of, does this make me good enough, you know? Um, and it got to a point where I just realized that I kept on adding more things externally, you know, I had a house, I had, um, uh, all these credits after my name. I had the DR in front of my name. Um, and I then, entered a relationship who is with my wife, who is the most emotionally safe pe person I've ever met um, in the history of the world. And the most incredible person who just loved me for being me, that I could finally go, hold on a second. 
I have just completely bought in to Western ideals about what makes a woman valuable. And now that when I, when you're in a place of emotional safety and you can be loved without conditions and without guardedness, it makes you reevaluate everything that you've held about yourself. And so as much as I was already on the path to being really good at saying no and setting boundaries and just coming at the world in a different way by the time I met Nissa, what the emotional safety that our love provided us with, I'm sorry, provided me with, was this space to go, oh, I don't actually have to be anything other than who I am and I am perfectly okay. Not perfect, but perfectly okay. And from that place, my entire life was reshapen. I, I, I spent time letting go of all this pressure, you know, just dropping the weight of what I thought I had to be in order to be worthy to then just be able to sit back and go, you know what, stuff your ideals. Because I know at the end of the day, if I was to die tomorrow, I can tell you that I'm dying by living by my values. And my values are by putting the things that I love first. My, my nan passed away a couple of years ago and she said to me just three months before she died, she said, just after my pop had died, her husband, she said to me, darling, in the end, all that matters is who you love and how you love them. And I hold that so dearly because my self-worth now is no longer attached to anything external to me. It's attached to, am I living the life that I want to say I lived at the end of the day? Am I living by my values? And when it comes to building self-worth, because you know, you've seen me talk about this topic a million times probably by now. That's because I feel like it. Without self-worth, we, we don't have a solid foundation on the ground, you know. It stops us from being able to relate in healthy ways in our relationships. It stops us from being able to work in the way that we want to work, to be able to contribute to the world with what we've got to contribute. And it stops us from showing up authentically. And I think that is just devastating if you can't do that in your life. But in terms of building self-worth, that's why I always come back to starting with what is important to you and who are you. Getting clear on your identity to then come at the world from a place of permission to be who you are. And sometimes we need to start by taking away the things in our life that make us feel like we can't be who we are. And that might mean letting go of relationships that are unhealthy because the person places conditions on us. Um, it might be unfollowing or just doing a digital detox as to what you're exposed to on a daily basis. My favorite button on Instagram is mute. Um, and uh, it, it might also be just coming back to your own um, standards that you've taken on. that You don't realize you've taken on until you consciously look. And I think that was the case for me. You know, I spent, I spent even, you know, the first, my first few years out of, after being registered as a psychologist, still kind of espousing this talk, but not walking it. And I don't know whether walking the talk has come with age 
uh, healthy love or whether I've just had enough time to go, whoa, look at all the messages that I took on unconsciously and had to unlearn, but didn't actually realize it while I was still young. Because I think that's what happens to us. I'm not saying I'm not young now. I'm just saying, you know, I was younger. Yeah. But I don't want to be ageist. I love aging. I think aging is a wonderful thing for the acquisition of wisdom and just being able to be comfortable in your own skin. But in terms of self-worth, I really think it's important to stop and go, hold on a second. What am I holding unconsciously that perhaps I haven't realized I'm holding stories that I'm running about myself, that if I let go of those stories, all of a sudden my shoulders could drop and I could breathe a little easier and I could actually show up in the world as I am rather than who I think I should be. Mm, yeah, I know you said like so many important things and I think, I think I personally, I, I mean, I can definitely relate to this, have struggled with it um, in, in many, many ways, uh, especially as somebody being quite ambitious as well. It sometimes feels like just striving and, you know, it's dependent on so many things and, and just coming to that realization is so powerful and following people like yourself and your work. I think it's just incredibly empowering to so many people. Um, Another thing is, um, is, is self-sabotage, which a lot of us do and don't recognize whether it's in, in activities just like procrastination or, um, or just yeah, somehow just getting in the way of actually, we, we, we say we want one thing, but it just seems like we're unable to attain it um, because of external circumstances, never really being able to look at what we are doing um, and coming to that realization. And how difficult is it to do that when, when you don't have the help of a psychologist or a, or a therapist or a coach? Is it possible for us to realize on our own and do the work on our own to come to those realizations of actually, okay, this thing might be hindering our progress or that we maybe we need to change our career or, um, you know, maybe I need to understand this anxiety that I'm feeling. Yeah, I certainly do think it's possible without professional help um, to be able to come to that realization. But I don't think it's possible unless you have your eyes open to be able to look honestly at yourself. So to be able to acknowledge self-sabotage means that you need to be radically honest with yourself. And if you can't bring that kind of honesty to the table because it's too painful to look at, then you might find that you stay in the cycle of self-sabotage a lot longer. And, you know, that happens for all of us. I think it's really hard to look at the ways that we're tripping ourselves up, particularly if it's stopping us from having something that we desperately want, whether that be the job of our dreams, the person of our dreams, the relationship of our dreams, or um, some kind of goal that is a very important and meaningful, and yet we just don't get there because of the things that we're doing or not doing. I want to just go back to procrastination because you mentioned procrastination. I think it's really important to just make a note of the fact that every single person on the face of the planet procrastinates, um, except maybe elite athletes when they're in the middle of training and they're forced to turn up on a certain schedule. But even then, you know, I'm sure that they get affected by this. A little bit of procrastination, a little bit of some form of self-sabotage is not a problem. We all do it. Human beings are wired. It is in our DNA to avoid discomfort 
because once upon a time that was essential for our survival. And so as good as we are at avoiding discomfort, what our brain doesn't do is distinguish between com um, discomfort of uh, something that's going to hurt us and discomfort for growth. And so we need conscious awareness to be able to go, hold on a second, it's worth getting out of bed this little bit early so that I can work on my studies before I go to work because I want to get this particular degree or because I um, want to go for a walk. Um, I'm struggling with that at the moment. I really want to walk each morning and yet there's part of me that goes, oh, but you know, bed's so much more comfortable and I'm tired. So the thing though that's really important to me is to be able to move around with my toddler. And so what our brains do is they go, hold on a second. I just want to, in the moment, choose the comfort. And a little bit of that is not a problem. But when you do it so often that you start to become defined by your self-sabotaging habits, that's when self-sabotage is getting in the way. That's when it's going to start to become a roadblock for you. So I'm not here to say you shouldn't ever procrastinate because then I'd be a liar. And I'd also be showing up to you as someone who is definitely not walking her talk. I procrastinate all the time. But not so much that it stops me from doing really important things like getting my book finished. I was just on a book deadline. And um, being able to do things that need to be done, even though I don't particularly love them. And so it's important to be able to bring a sense of conscious awareness is this discomfort because the discomfort is going to hurt me in some way and therefore I should try to avoid it? Or is it discomfort for growth and therefore I need to find a way to move through it in order to be able to reach the goals that are important to me? Mm, yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's a good point actually, reminding us that yeah, a little bit, a little bit is human and normal as well. <laughs> yeah. Important to remember that. You mentioned, yeah. you mentioned writing and obviously you've also written a book called um, The Art of Self-Kindness. Um, so mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. Um, the Universe Listens to Brave, which was my second book, and The Art of Self-Kindness, which is my third book, are both collections of my quotes. So if you go to my Instagram page, there's a whole series of quotes. Um, that I put up a while ago that were captured into those two books, the first on courage and the second on self-kindness and self-kindness is all about, um, I basically wanted to write a book about how we reestablish our relationship with ourselves when that relationship has been um, perhaps not all that positive in the past without preaching self-love and things that were inaccessible. Because in my experience in clinical practice, most people I treated had some form of I'm not good enough um, sitting within them, some form of belief around their worthiness um, that held them back. And if I had have sat there and said, you've just got to love yourself, they would have wanted to slap me across the face <laughs> quite reasonably. <laughs> and so what I wanted to capture in the art of self-kindness is what practices we can do to bring a little kindness to our relationship with ourselves without having to reach to the lofty goals of loving ourselves. Because I think sometimes that can be far too big of a jump for some people who aren't feeling that great about themselves. So instead I wanted to make it something practical. And if we think of friendship, if you're in a friendship with someone, 
that requires a bit of effort, right? Um, particularly if you're in a regular friendship. I'm not talking about the friends that you don't see for 10 years and then you pick up and you have a conversation for an hour and it's like you never left each other, but then you don't talk for another decade, you know. I'm talking about the friendships that are in your daily life. Those friendships require effort. And yet we don't always think of our relationship with ourselves as the same as requiring effort. And so the effort that I suggest that you put into your relationship with yourself um, is around self-kindness and how we can have compassion for our own human experience and therefore translate how we approach the world to be one of empathy for, our, for us personally and therefore reduce the um, internal criticism and the internal uh, negative self-talk that we often carry instead. Mm, yeah yeah and I think that ties into like we spoke about self-worth as well and like you said very very rightly so that um yeah I think we all do need to reevaluate that relationship with ourselves because you immediately look outside yourself first um yeah for sure I would like to talk a little bit about purpose because this series is based on purpose um, a lot of people that I've, I've spoken to are still struggling with, with figuring out what it is that they should be doing or whether, even if they're happy with what they're doing, whether it's really what they're supposed to be doing. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about this idea that there is this one purpose that we have, which we, if we, if we do get aligned, if, you know, we, we are, we are doing what we say we want, that it is achievable. But then does that really mean it is the thing that we're supposed to do necessarily, if that makes sense? And, you know, what, what this idea of purpose is to you personally? The first thing I will say is um, certainly not for everyone. So I don't, I don't actually believe that there's one purpose that we're put on earth to do because I think that it's so reductive to think that um, what it does is it takes away the impact of um, everything, race, gender, um, our circumstances in which we grow up, poverty, all those types of things that might happen for us. And therefore to place this kind of white elitist idea that there is one purpose and you need to find it and then you'll self-actualize, bullshit. Um, I just don't buy it and I don't think it's helpful. What I will say is that for some people, they might have a talent um, or some kind of gift that they find their way to and that becomes what they love to do and what they love to do becomes perhaps their work. And then they might call it their purpose. But it just happens that those two things align. My wife is one of them. She's a musician. She's been um, playing some form of music since she was five. And that has taken uh, various turns from her wanting to be on stage um, and, you know, famous to now her wanting to record and contribute to others um, music being released into the world. And I think music, she would say music is her purpose, but music is the thing that she happens to be good at that she's um, then put in the work to make her job. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in this idea that we need to 
make our talent our job. That doesn't always have to be the thing. Or that we need to find a purpose that is somehow unique to us and that we're here to do. I really want to relieve people of this idea that you need to have a one purpose and two that you need to make money out of that particular purpose and three that it can't evolve and you can't change your mind because if you buy into those beliefs then you're going to back yourself into a corner back yourself into a corner a if you don't feel like you've got any standout talents I'm sure you do, but we don't always know about them. We haven't tried everything in the world. So how can you know? And then secondly, that if you then have to try to make money out of that thing and it changes your relationship with that thing, because you've just put pressure on it to make money for you. And then if you decide that you don't love it all that much in a few years time and you've got to change direction, oh, oh my goodness, does that mean it's not really my purpose? And therefore, what does that mean about me if I'm now moving away from that purpose? So instead, I'm coming back around because I think it's really important for us to have a sense of meaning in life. Absolutely. Meaning and purpose. If we use those two terms um, interchangeably, then what I would say is more workable, or at least what's more workable for me and what I've seen to be more workable for my clients is this idea that if we stay aligned to what's important to us, that is our values, and then allow that to show up in different ways in our life, it provides far more flexibility if you're not like my wife and you didn't wake up singing. You know, if you weren't just flying out of the birth canal um, with these amazing musical talents uh, that the rest of us don't have. I do not sing. I don't hurt people's eardrums at all. Whereas my wife can play anything, sing anything. She's just one of those people. And so we're not all like that. And if you're not like that, it doesn't mean that you can't be happy. It doesn't mean that you can't live an incredibly satisfying and fulfilled existence. It just means that you can give yourself a stack more flexibility and what that looks like for you in any given season in your life. So what might be important to you at one stage in your life might change a few years later. Um, I would never have guessed that I, when I was 18, that I would be sitting here today doing interviews like this and writing books and doing the thing, educating my students the way I do today but I am. And I absolutely love it. And if you had have told my pilot flying version of myself back then, that this is the way it would look, I would have said, no, no, no. My purpose is to fly. No, it's not. <laughs> I can tell you that. No, it's not. Um, and yet I didn't know that at the time. So if you allow yourself to have more spaciousness around this idea of purpose and to know that sometimes you might feel like you have a purpose and then it might change. And other times you might not feel like you have a purpose at all because you're just not in that space in life where perhaps you're in a job that you don't love and yet it pays the bills. So you've just got to stay there for this little period of time. That doesn't mean that you won't then cross the next bridge and find something that brings you a deep sense of meaning. What I am saying is meaning can come in all different forms. It can come in relationships. It can come from our work. It can come from our hobbies. It can come from um, the good that we do in the world and how we contribute to others. It doesn't have to be a single purpose. 
Sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but it's something I feel quite passionate about. No, no. um, Yeah, no, I think it's it's really brilliant and important to talk about because um, we often see that change and that shift, like like you mentioned, it's it's absolutely normal to change. You know, we we, we change direction and that's okay, but we see that as failure a lot of the time. So I think it's it's so crucial to talk about that. Another thing I would love to ask you about, a little bit about, is, is this idea of boundaries. Because I feel like I realized much later in life that there is this thing called boundaries and we can, we can implement it. And it does protect us in a way um, if, we, if we can use it well and put it into action well. But people struggle with this all the time. And I, I know that I have, um, absolutely. And one thing is struggling with getting to a place of even being able to implement it and then almost feeling guilty that, and, and still worrying to a certain degree about what another person will think. And another thing is if we don't enforce it or practice it, um, we can lose our peace and we just get that disruption of peace. Um, I, I, I like to refer to it as that. And so is there like a, a middle ground with boundaries? Is there a way that we we don't have to feel these almost extreme emotions on either end no no there's not a middle ground and i'm going to say that at the outset because when you first come to boundaries if boundaries have been unfamiliar to you and you've not used them for self-preservation and self-protection in the past and instead you've given other people kind of unfiltered access to you and your personal resources then you might very well feel extreme emotions when you first start setting boundaries they might feel scary as hell and you might very well encounter people who um, uh, get their back up and give you a lot of pushback in response to your boundaries because those people have been heavily invested in the unboundaried version of you. And when you start to say no, they're not going to like that. Unfortunately, boundaries are a little bit like courage. The more you set them, and you start to see the benefits of sitting with that fear and sitting with that anxiety, but doing the thing anyway, the more resilient you become at being able to a know yourself and what your boundaries are, because we have both internal boundaries and external boundaries. So my external boundaries are you and I between you and I, my boundaries with you and internal boundaries are my boundaries with me. So they're things like time I go to bed at night, you know, how much screen time I allow myself sometimes I violate that boundary a lot, but um, you know what I mean. And so when it comes to setting those boundaries, the more practice you have, the better you get at knowing them, the better you get at communicating them and the better you get at enforcing them because you're very right. It's one thing to set a boundary. It's a completely different thing to defend that boundary when it's crossed. And that's where people get um, trip, trip up a lot. They either struggle to say no in the first place or to communicate the boundary, whatever it is in the first place, or the minute the boundary gets shaken or um, someone (laughs) peeks a toe over the line, they crumble and just allow the person to have unfiltered access to them. And so in those times, I'll say two things to that. One is um, we need to talk about guilt uh, and unnecessary guilt versus necessary guilt. And then we need to talk about the fact that anyone that pushes back against your boundaries is likely the reason you need boundaries in the first place. 
So those people are going to teach you exactly why you need your boundaries. Now, guilt is one that comes up so often um, when it comes to boundaries. I think mainly for women because we just want to be nice. And the most common question I've been asked when I was writing my boundary, my book on boundaries by, by my followers, because I kind of put out some posts and said, what are your struggles? Is how do I say it in a nice, calm, polite, friendly, um, whatever way so that I kind of keep everyone happy? And my answer is, you can care about somebody else's feelings, but you can't control their reaction. And so you can communicate in an assertive way that is still respectful, but you can't control how somebody's going to interpret that. And how somebody interprets your boundary is none of your business as long as they respect the boundary. If for some reason they're disappointed in you, they reject you, they abandon you, that says so much more about them than it does about you. And unfortunately, I'm not going to give you a formula for how you can keep that person in your life and have boundaries. There, those two things don't exist. You can still have them in your life and not have good boundaries or have your boundaries challenged all the time, or you can have boundaries and you can put them in their place around those boundaries and then choose what you're going to do, whether or not they accept the boundaries based on whether or not they accept the boundaries. If they don't accept the boundaries, you can remove them from your life. You can take away their privileges. So their access to you or their access to their, to your resources. So you can actually set consequences but you cannot, or at least very rarely, can you take care of someone else's feelings and make them happy and meet all their needs in the way that their needs have currently been met when you have no boundaries and set your own boundaries? Mm -hmm. Because those two things generally don't go together. Yeah. You can be respectful. You can communicate well. But even if you're the most beautiful, beautiful communicator, does not mean that you'll necessarily please someone when you introduce boundaries that were not previously there. And the thing about boundaries too, is that sometimes we learn them as we go. <laughs> so sometimes we didn't know a boundary was there until it was crossed. And then we're like, yeah. Oh, that did not feel good. And so we have to then communicate the fact that we've just realized there's a boundary there. Please don't cross it again. And that can happen within us as well. Um, so I've learned over time in, in, in business and in the work that I do, where my boundaries are, when, when my energy is most likely to be present. Um, so how I schedule my diary is very intentional because I want to be able to do the things that I commit to 150%. And I have only learned that by crossing my own boundaries and, and feeling exhausted and going, Oh, why did I sign up for this? Why did I say yes again? Um, and this is why my no's are just, just as important as my yeses. Because if I say yes to you, then you can guarantee that you get all of me in my fullest self, as much as I can give you on that particular day, because I've scheduled it that way. And that's why boundaries are important because they determine how we give out, we give of ourselves to other people and what's left for us in the process. I actually read something today. Um, uh, you come after me, you come first. And I just love that so much because I think it's so true for everything that we do, whether it be loving, parenting, um, being a family member, being a friend, running a business with clients and customers. After me, you come first. 
Yeah. Because if we don't stop to look after ourselves, if we don't stop to check in with our personal resources, how on earth can we offer ourselves to other people in a healthy way? Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's so, it's so crucial, I think, to recognize that, especially with, I, I feel like a lot of people struggle with this, even with their own family. Um, and, and therefore it becomes extremely difficult because you're, you're born into a family and, and you, you, it's that different relationship from onset. And therefore there is that, especially in, so I'm, I mean, I'm from an Asian family, Asian background. What I've noticed in also the South Asian community is um, a lot of codependent relationships and therefore very less, very less boundaries or at least the ability that they don't have the ability to set boundaries with certain people. And in, in those kind of situations, is, is, is it a matter of really redefining those relationships in your adulthood from your childhood? Um, would it yeah. just come that down to that? I don't think we can say it just comes down to that because it minimises the gravity of having to do that. And I totally get how hard that is, especially when we're talking about people that have shaped you as a being. They've raised you in many cases um, and it takes a village. So it might be your extended family as well. And it might just be the way we do things around here. So this family culture mm. and you're up against family culture over and over again. And the family kind of bands together to reinforce your behavior as being good or bad as to whether or not you fit in with what they want you to be versus whether or not you're blazing your own path. Now, I think it's difficult. It's really difficult if it's your own family. I, um, I think we've just seen this with the US elections and people who are choosing a very different path, children of adults, um, you know, they're growing now, but they're old enough to vote and they're voting very differently than their parents might have voted. And they're very confronted by their parents' beliefs and the way they vote um, and what that represents about them. And it challenges these adult children's identity. You know, how on earth can I love these people that have raised me when they believe these things based on what they, who they vote for? And it's the same thing in family cultures. If you've grown up in a family culture where as an adult, you choose to do the opposite of what you were raised to do because it doesn't fit with who you want to be, then it's about redefining who you are as being completely okay, even though it's different to the pod that you've come from. And then being able to work out where your family sits in relation to you um, from, uh, sorry, on the basis of self-protection. So the boundaries are then about how do you protect yourself from harm? And I'm, usually, I'm talking about emotional harm. Physical harm is never, ever, ever okay. So that's grounds for removing someone, whether they're related to you by blood or not, from your life. Physical harm is never okay. Emotional abuse is never okay. But sometimes um, your emotional safety is violated in very subtle ways. Mm. And that can be just by people passive-aggressively um, disproving of our choices and, you know, all the ways that that shows up. And if that happens, you know, and you still really want to love these people because, they kind of played a really important role in your life as they do for most humans. 
then it's about deciding where they live in your circles of intimacy and influence around you. How close are you going to allow them? Because the closer you allow them to you, then the greater chance and opportunity they have to harm you, whether it be intentionally or unintentionally. Usually it's unintentional, but often mm. when they unintentionally harm you, they're also heavily invested in shaping you to be who they want you to be. Anyone who wants you to be something other than what you are is violating your boundaries. And so then as an adult, it becomes a question of how do you um, encircle yourself mm. with a boundary that is based on self-protection. And sometimes that means that um, if it's your family, let's say we're talking about family, your family doesn't um, get access to you without you planning it, without you not giving them all the information. You know, you might not talk about your goals and dreams because that's just not going to be supported and it's going to bring you down. You might not talk about who you love because they're going to, um, that's only going to cause conflict and it's not worth going there. Um, and, you know, I, I strongly consider anyone who's facing a family who rejects them on these bases um, to think about whether or not these people are actually still healthy to have in your life. But if they are, and I'll use my own parents as an example of this, I love my parents dearly, um, but they're of a certain generation that I don't particularly love <laughs> because that generation is a little bit limited in the way that they think. And uh, I am actively anti-racist and doing my own work in uh, dismantling my own privilege, my white privilege and the uh, kind of racism that I might've un unconsciously held internally. I am unlearning a whole series of things um, based on the work that I've been doing to do that work. And my parents have not been doing the same work and never will. Mm -hmm. that's not to say that they're openly racist, but the, the fact that they're not doing the work and are sometimes confronted with um, my outspoken views on uh, diversity and inclusivity means that sometimes uh, I, um, I want to have really strong conversations and um, you know, it's probably not going to go down well. I, I'm not going to get rid of my parents from my life because of that. I, I understand where they're coming from. Um, I shape their views. I now have much, a much stronger, um, I guess, power over their views because they listen to what I say, but I also accept that they won't always listen to what I say. And some of because of their own upbringing, some of what I say is confrontational and they're not necessarily ready or willing to do the unlearning that I'm doing. Um, but then I look at other things like my parenting boundaries. And even though it's not the same as the way they parented, they respect it. And I respect that. So things like we don't smack Bennett. I was smacked as a child. Um, and Nissa and I don't raise our voice at Bennett. We don't smack him. We have other ways of getting our messages across to him. And my parents respect that and we would never smack him, even though that's what they did to us as children because they didn't know any better. And so I think it's 
You can see the nuance here, right? There's a lot of nuance. And I think it's really important to respect that in any family system, because we are talking about families being a system, a dynamic system that's constantly moving. Mm. So what I would say is always come from the place of self-protection. If you can't, um, if you don't have boundaries in place to be able to protect you, then you might need to do uh, have some distance between you and your family while you're doing the work to get those boundaries in place. Um, and then if you're exposed to a family who emotionally abuses you or physically abuses you or dramatically compromises your safety in some way, whether it be emotional or physical, then I would strongly encourage you to talk to a professional and to do the work that you need to do to ensure that your safety is paramount. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. I just am super passionate about talking about this this specific topic um, because I know so many people struggle with this and often don't even talk about it, you know. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's so great that you shared that and the fact that it is so nuanced, as you said, it, it, you can't, it can't be generalised at all. Um, it's definitely not textbook. So I think that's, that's really great that you shed some light on that. It's been so wonderful talking to you, Rebecca. I'm so grateful to you for for jumping on and having this conversation despite the the time difference and everything else. Um, Could you just tell us, tell the the, the listeners where they can find your book um, and yeah, where, where they can find more information about you? Sure. Um, You can find all my things on rebeccaray.com.au free resources at rebeccaray.com.au forward slash free. That's F-R-E-E. My books are in all good bookstores. If my books aren't there, it's not a good bookstore. Um, And you can get my books online as well. And um, uh, I'm on all the socials as at Dr. Rebecca Ray. Great. Thank you so much once again. My pleasure, Annie. Thank you for having me. And that was the final episode on the Purpose series. I'm thoroughly excited, as always, to start a brand new series next Sunday. I hope you all enjoyed Purpose. I hope it's given you clarity that Purpose is not this one specific thing that we need to attain, that Purpose can also change, that Purpose is dependent upon Uh, your belief systems as well and what you believe purpose to be and through all the conversations I hope that something resonated with you that something perhaps changed that uh, you are on the path to understanding yourself better and maybe even this idea of purpose better Stay tuned with everything Unplug Annie on the website www.unplugwithannie.com if you'd like to subscribe to the newsletters where you get more intensive details about my guests prior to the release times then please feel free to sign up on the website. You can also follow Unplug with Annie on Instagram and Facebook and we shall be back next Sunday for a brand new series as promised.